0: Hi, I'm Copthorne MacDonald, and this Wisdom Page podcast episode is titled, Dealing with Reactivity, Part 1. The content is adapted from Chapter 6 of my book, Toward Wisdom. The control of reactivity, reactive emotion and reactive behavior, is both a cultural matter and a personal matter. Totally unbridled reactive behavior is intolerable in any culture. Yet channeled reactivity is often considered a cultural good. In our North American cultures, for example, a multi-billion dollar advertising industry effectively keeps up our level of reactive desire. Possess, consume, enjoy, it exclaims. Live the good life in all its dimensions. Violence, when channeled against a culture's enemy, is another frequently encountered cultural good. Our culture, early in our lives, imposed upon us its limits to reactive behavior. It taught us how to behave. We learned what the culturally acceptable limits were. This learning took place in our neocortex, the largest, newest part of our brain. This part of the brain comes with, or develops as it matures, several facilitative structures into which culture-based learning embeds itself. These structures define our intellectual potentials and include, one, the linguistic deep structures that Noam Chomsky has written about, the built-in universal grammar that allows small children to quickly master whatever human language they are exposed to, 2. Ordinary musical, artistic, and mathematical sensibilities, and in rarer cases, giftedness in these areas. 3. Structures that allow us to analyze, to perform analytical, linear, rational data processing. 4. Structures that allow us to synthesize, to perform creative, holistic, intuitive data processing. 5. Gear-shifting structures that move us toward higher levels of psychological growth when circumstances are favorable. Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs and Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces archetype. Six, other archetypal structures. Universal human ways of being. The primal patterns we unconsciously adopt in creating our individual lives. Perhaps the golden rule is embodied in such a structure, and the 64 universal human situations that underlie the hexagrams of the I Ching. Jung felt that we inherit genetically a collective unconscious containing many powerful universal human archetypes. These archetypes do not forcefully direct and control, rather they are pre-established patterns a few of which we may resonate with at any given time and make our own. Seven, that executive decision-making structure mentioned earlier, that consciousness-assisted brain process, in which the system emergent we call mind, affects certain physical subsystems and thereby controls behavior. The specific ways in which these neocortical structures develop is determined largely by the array of influences that each person encounters, by each person's unique sequence of life experiences, by the culture in which each of us grows and develops. As Paul McLean put it, in the field of literature it is recognized that there is an irreducible number of basic plots and associated emotions. In describing the functions of the triune brain metaphorically, one might imagine that the reptilian brain provides the basic plots and actions, that the limbic brain influences the emotional developments of the plots, while the neomammalian brain has the capacity to expound the plots and emotions in as many ways as there are authors. Anthropologist Ruth Benedict studied many cultures and like the existentialists after her, came to the conclusion that there was no one given human nature. There were many potential human natures, and each culture reinforced and developed a different mix of potential ways of being and behaving. As I piece the story together from Maslow's account in The Farther Reaches of Human Nature and her book, Patterns of Culture... Ruth Benedict noted great differences between the kind of people she found in one society and those she found in another. Some societies consisted of good, secure, likable, non-aggressive people. Others consisted of surly, nasty, aggressive people. The personality characteristics didn't correlate with any of the usual anthropological factors geography, race, climate, wealth, etc., She struggled to find an answer. She found her answer in the type of reinforcement that particular cultures gave to ways of behaving, to attitudes and to states of mind. She came to see human nature as a vast array of potential mind states and behavior, with each individual's nature being determined to a large extent by the pattern of cultural reinforcements that the individual had experienced. Some cultures reinforce the least desirable human potentials, those connected with our ancient brains, greed, hate, envy, etc. Our present North American cultures, and industrial cultures in general, tend to reinforce greed, and they reinforce violence in contexts such as war and some sports. They also emphasize the development of the rational mind and the development of capable players for culture-defined, worthwhile activities. Ruth Benedict and other anthropologists are telling us that we are clones of our culture to a much greater extent than we would like to think. Culture-originated brain programming determines much of what we do and how we think. Yet we have great difficulty coming to see this. Anthropologist Edward Hall has described the problem. There is, as far as I know, no way out of the dilemma of the cultural bind. One cannot normally transcend one's culture without first exposing its major hidden axioms and unstated assumptions concerning what life is all about, how it is lived, viewed, analyzed, talked about, described, and changed. Bicultural people and culture contact situations enhance the opportunity for comparison. Two other situations that expose culture's hidden structure are when one is raising the young and is forced to explain things, and when traditional cultural institutions begin to crumble, as they are now doing. The task is far from simple, yet understanding ourselves and the world we have created in which in turn creates us, is perhaps the single most important task facing mankind today. Unquote. As Maslow's work showed, much also depends on how well our needs are met. When unmet needs are widespread within a culture, the effect can be particularly unfortunate. I live today in Prince Edward Island, Canada, but my macdonald Ancestors came from the highlands of Scotland. Coincidentally, so did the ancestors of many Prince Edward Islanders. The names MacDonald with a small d and MacDonald with a capital D take up more space in my phone book than any other name. In addition, there are whole columns of Campbells, Stuarts, Maclean's, and other highland names. Like most North Americans, we islanders tend to be interested in our roots and to glorify our ancestors a bit. We take pride in being of Scottish descent and like to picture our forebears as fine, noble human beings. At one point, I read a bit of Scottish history involving my MacDonald ancestors. A story is told about how the clan MacDonald of Glencoe invited the clan Campbell to a feast in 1692. The Campbells turned on their hosts and slaughtered many MacDonalds. To get the gory details, I turned to historian John Preble's book, *Glen Coe, The Story of the Massacre. I got more gore than I expected. It turns out that the massacre was not an isolated incident. Life was hell for most Highlanders in the 1600s. Their rude dwellings were likened by people of the day to cow buyers, dung hills, and the earths of wild animals. During the winter, their houses sheltered not only highland humans, but highland cattle as well. They were heated by open peat fires that filled them with smoke, reddening the eyes of people and cattle and blackening the walls. Some smoke escaped through a hole in the roof. Some escaped through those holes in the wall they called windows. Preble gave an all too vivid picture of the pervasive brutality. Violence was part of life standard armament for a highland man was two pistols, a dirk, a musket, a sword, and a bullhide shield. Young boys spent part of each summer learning to use these weapons. Summers were the good times, but each winter brought the specter of starvation. Life centered on making it through the current winter and preparing for the next. Summer activities included murderous raids on other clans, stealing cattle and anything else of value insurance against the perils of the coming winter. The barbarity of the Highlanders, it seems, was exceeded only by that of the English justice doled out by the king's man, the Earl of Argyle. Standard practice before hanging a man was to tear one of his arms from its socket and impale it on a pike. One of the Earl's lesser punishments was to bore a hole through a man's tongue with a hot iron. It was during this period that Thomas Hobbes called the life of man in the natural state, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. It was that in the Highlands. Today on Prince Edward Island, I, like my Highland ancestors, passed long winters and short summers. But no one is starving here, and murder and cattle stealing are not standard pastimes. We bled descendants of those same violent clansmen live peacefully together and treat each other at least as nicely as average North Americans do. The last time I checked, Prince Edward Island had the lowest per capita homicide rate of all Canadian provinces and the lowest rate for all violent crime. Geneticists would tell us that the genes haven't changed appreciably in 300 years. Three centuries is no time at all on the scale of evolutionary time. Yet there is this great difference between the behavior of the Highlanders of the 1600s and the Islanders of today. Why? The answer in Maslow's schema is that the basic physical and psychological needs of today's Islanders are much better met. The answer in Ruth Benedict's Is that today's PEI culture does not promote violent behavior to the extent that the Highland culture of the 1600s did? If our physical and psychological needs are fully met by our society, if we live in a rich, stimulating, uplifting milieu, then it may be possible to actualize the very highest potentials inherent in those cortical structures our needs are not met, however, and if the influences we encounter do not motivate us to develop the best within us, then this won't happen. In the worst cases of deprivation, the person's inner experience and outer behavior will be controlled much of the time by the mechanistic, reactive, hardwired programming of the ancient brains. Also, whatever cortical capabilities we have developed are likely to be used to aid this reactivity. We grew up in the culture we grew up in. We were indoctrinated with that culture's mores, values, and behavioral limits. Now, as we attempt to reduce our own reactivity to a much lower level, it would be foolish to expect a lot of help from that same culture. The setting of new limits and the search for ways of reaching those limits will have to be a personal matter. As we have seen, a large body of research makes it clear that the reptilian and limbic brains come pre-programmed by evolution to generate animalistic behaviors and mind states. The great hope for us human beings is our extensive neocortex and its network of interconnections with the two ancient brains. Because of those connections, the human intellect has considerable control over reactive behavior and mind states. On the negative side, the neocortex can stir up trouble. Thought and imagination, neocortical activities, are able to trigger reactive emotion and behavior into existence. Thought and imagination also play a major role in sustaining reactive states. On the positive side, neocortical control of attention and energy can be used to bring reactive states to an end, to prevent them from arising in the first place. The human animals among us are proficient at the first use in the neocortex. The saints and sages have mastered the second. In gene-slash-environment or nature-slash-nurture terms, parts of human brains come genetically pre-programmed to initiate violent behavior if those programs are activated. At the same time, other brain-mind processes programmable ones once susceptible to influences from culture and environment can prevent such triggering at least in all but the most stressful circumstances the frontal lobe decision-making process can via interconnections with the two animal brains ride herd on them monitor their outputs and cut them off at the pass even when the ancient brains are not determining our actions Intense mental reactivity sometimes arises and dominates consciousness. At such times, the channel of reactive emotion takes over the screen of subjective experience. may push everything else into the background and can easily ruin our day. Have you ever watched the process by which these reactive mind states arise? Careful and persistent watching of what is going on in the mind can reveal it. It all starts with a reactive impulse, a kind of mental knee-jerk, rising, we understand, within a brain circuit that includes the limbic brain. It might be a pang of desire, jealousy, loneliness, or fear, or it might be a flash of anger, hate, or lust. Sometimes it ends right there. Awareness may pick up the impulse immediately, and the thinking mind might respond with something like, That's silly or that's inappropriate or I don't want to go into that when this happens the whole thing gets dropped the impulse occurs triggered by whatever but nothing happens to make a big deal of it it's a bit like what happens in the following two-line computer program on line one is an instruction to print the statement "Pang of jealousy on line two is an instruction to end the program if you ran that program, the words pang of jealousy would appear on the screen once, and nothing more would happen. However, what frequently occurs is more like a slightly more complex program. In this second program, line one is the same. Print the statement, pang of jealousy. But instead of ending the program on line two, the line two program instruction is to print the statement, thoughts about why I should be jealous. Then on line 3, there's an instruction to go back to line 1. There's also a line 4 containing an instruction to end the program. In the situation that this program models, the pang of jealousy is followed by a little story, by a few thoughts about why I should be jealous. The story itself, the imagining, then becomes the cause for another pang of jealousy. It is handled in the program by the command in line 3 to go back to line 1. If you ran this second program, the screen would fill with the two statements, then scroll indefinitely as statements repeat over and over again. The scrolling would continue until you turned the computer off or reset it. The program never reaches line 4 and the instruction to end the program. In computer programming, it's called an infinite loop. In electronics and servo mechanism theory, it's called positive feedback. In everyday life, it's called a state of jealousy. The isolated pang of jealousy leads to a story about it that leads to another pang that leads to more story, etc. The resulting state doesn't end until something interrupts the looping. The energy to keep it going might fail. Attention might be drawn to something else, or new information might be received that convinces the mind to stop its painful foolishness. This, then, is the first step toward a non-reactive mental life, a life free of painful states of mind. Notice reactive impulses when they first arise. Once having noticed an impulse, there are three ways of dealing with it, not all of them equally appropriate. 1. We can prolong the impulse by identifying with it and weaving a story around it, by feeding energy into a process that maintains it. If we do this, then a state of anger, fear, jealousy, or desire arises. This in turn may result in anger-based, fear-based, jealousy-based, or desire-based action of some sort. 2. Another option is to deny or repress the impulse. To push it into the subconscious. This is apt to have unfortunate consequences later since repressed material is not really gone. It often returns and causes trouble. A third option is simply to note the impulse, realize its automatic, mechanical, ancient brain origin, and let it go. Benjamin Libet has investigated the brain-mind process involved in making voluntary movements. His interesting results seem to apply to conscious decision-making in many situations, including our dealings with reactive impulses. The first of Libet's findings was that a conscious intention to move is initiated by unconscious brain processes. Evidence for this is a slow negative shift in the electrical potential of the scalp that precedes by as much as a second, the arising in consciousness of an intention to move. If that strikes you as deterministic bad news, you'll like his second finding. Libet discovered that for a fraction of a second after an intention to act arises in the mind, a conscious decision can be made to veto the action. Thus, although the intention or impulse to act arises automatically, there is a brief 11th hour window of opportunity during which conscious choice is possible. Libet's results help make sense of some experiences of daily life. Did you ever find yourself pouring another cup of coffee without having consciously intended to? Did you ever brush a fly away or slap a mosquito without thinking? Did you ever get up from your chair and walk toward the kitchen and only then realize that it was a pang of hunger that triggered the process? It seems that the unconscious programs of the brain initiate many actions, and if we're not attentive, we lose that brief opportunity to veto them consciously. We can do nothing about the automatic arising of various thoughts, urges, and reactive impulses. Thus, there's no reason to feel guilt about any of them. It's all automatic. A product of mechanistic biocomputer processing. Our humanity, our freedom, resides in the possibility that the conscious mind can assess and veto before the urge, thought, or emotion turns into mindless action. If we are attentive enough, then the discriminative, selective human mind can say no to the mechanistic arisings. It can say no to the reactive perspective and yes to alternative perspectives. When the mind is alert and attentive in an allowing, non-reactive, broadly focused way, we can see feelings as simply feelings and urges as simply urges, rather than as absolute imperatives upon which we must act. And this mode of attention, reactive impulses, and other mechanistically generated messages from our ancient brains simply represent more information, more input to awareness, into the final conscious decision-making process. That ends part one of thoughts on dealing with reactivity, which I presented in chapter six of my book Toward Wisdom. Thanks for listening, and check out the many wisdom-related resources available on the Wisdom page. It's at www.cop.com. I'll spell that out, www.cop.com. Bye for now.